So we are looking at Ephesians 5, 1 to 11. And I want to start by saying, if you've got it there, please open it up. If I want to start by saying that there, there is a, a portion of this that people have misused. And I just want to get this, clarify this, get it out of the way straight away. In verse um, 5, it says, No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And I want to suggest, and you've probably heard this yourself, that at times um, Christians or, or people who consider themselves Christians have used that as a bit of a weapon to say that anyone who's made mistakes in terms of their sexuality or in terms of their um, actions in this world, that's it. They are completely discounted from being one of God's children. I would argue that that's not what this is saying that when it talks about immorality and when it talks about greed, and by the way, that's one that's often forgotten when the church starts to use th this verse as a weapon, that what it's really saying is that you as a, the Ephesian church have chosen to follow God. He is your God. And for a number of other people who haven't chosen that road yet, they have chosen another God, whether that is um, just feeling good, whether that is sexuality whether that is accumulating as much in by way of possessions as they possibly can that has become their god and therefore they are not headed on the road to salvation or to god so that very clearly is what ephesians is telling us in that so if anyone says you are discounted from god's kingdom because you have made this mistake or that mistake that's not what this is saying this is saying though some people have chosen a completely different road and therefore they wouldn't be considered Christians. I just wanted to get that out of the way. But even with that aside, I think a lot of people can see verses like this as very rules-based, as very prescriptive and quite harsh. And you might have thought that as we read them this morning, that there are a lot of instructions here about what we can't do. And it can seem a little bit over the top for a generation that is very much geared towards doing what feels right. And if it feels right, then it must be okay, as long as it's not hurting anybody else. But as long as it's not hurting anybody else is sometimes a little bit um, obscure as well. And so we have to try and understand what these verses might be telling us. But in the bigger picture, and this is what I want to address this morning, how much does it actually matter? whether we understand what these verses are unpacking or should we just be going with the general vibe of the Bible? People have seen, like I just explained, that, that people use the Bible as a weapon and so why not just put the weapon away? Why not just go with the general vibe that Jesus came to save, that he loved everybody and that what you do in the nitty gritty like this verse unpacks doesn't really matter? I want to suggest that it does matter and that we do need to take the Bible seriously. We need to take it humbly, but we also need to take it seriously. And I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking why I think that's the case. Raph's going to show you a little card that comes from this little book of cards that we got when we were interns at to Mention 27 years ago. And they're little uh, cards that represent Old Testament books. And so the one he's showing you is now Kevin and Dave Griffiths are going to appreciate this. Every card has a, a bit of a symbol to show you which book of the Bible it comes from. 
And I, I can almost guarantee that um, Kevin and Dave have already worked out what book of the Bible this is. See, it's a moose. It's a moose on the front of the card. And that is Amos, the book of Amos. I, I apologize. I, it's just what it is on the card. But anyway, that's, that's the first hint about what it is. But what is the moose holding? You'll see that he's got a string with a, it's a plumb line. So um, this is an, uh, an old fashioned form of a plumb line. So really, if you were building something, say a wall, and you wanted to see if you were building it straight, you would hold up a plumb line. The plumb line says here is straight because this has to fall straight. Is your wall in line with this plumb line? Have you got this right? Um, if you hold it up against Homer's birdhouse, not straight and you don't even need a plumb line for that but we all um, have done little activities along the way and think to ourselves is that straight is that really straight that's what that is representing now on the back of the card that Amos card it says this the key word for this book is plumb line times are good in Israel the nation basks in peace this is throughout the book of Amos prosperity strength and security mark that that community then comes Amos at God's direction this prophet holds up the carpenter's plumb line to measure the nation against God's perfect standard and finds only crookedness he breaks through the facade of respectability to expose the rotten core of immorality injustice and shallow piety the people have grown soft and lax in luxurious living so Amos a country farmer turned prophet declares God's terrible warning and issues his last call to repentance. So we see that in this particular context, um, the people of Israel had decided that their generation was the best educated, that they were comfortable, that the way they were living was having no bad repercussions. And so they would just go along their merry way and do what they wanted. Sure, they were people of faith, Sure, they held God in some kind of esteem, but they weren't going to get into the nitty gritty of what God was calling them to do because they didn't need to. That's what was in their mind. Now, how is that relevant to us? I wanna bring it a little bit further forward um, as we look at uh, something that was written in the story of Christianity. Now, some of you would have seen this book and read parts of this book. It's exceptional as it unpacks the story of Christianity right from um, Jesus' time through to uh, it says present day, but it, it was it's a pretty old book. Um, but in that book, in 1933, he talks about and unpacks this idea of Hitler and the Nazi party rising to power. And he mentions that early on in this party's um, development, there was a, a concordant or an agreement made between the Vatican and the Third Reich or the, the Nazi party. And so from that we have these huge alarm bells that somehow the Catholic Church thought that in this early um, development of what the Nazi party was representing they saw that this was very similar in their ideals and you think what how, how could that be but then we look at the Protestant Church and we find the same thing so um, there's a little quote here that Raffle put up this is from um, Gonzalez he said Protestant liberals had no theological tools with which to respond critically to this new challenge either. It wasn't just the Catholic Church. This was also the Protestant Church. People of faith 
had no tools to respond to these new ideas that were coming out because many of them had developed this idea of the perfectibility of the human race. This wasn't just the German church, by the way, this was German culture, this was Western culture, that we're on this progression up, we are improving, each generation is getting more intelligent, each generation is getting more clued in to what the proper way to respond is. They tended to confuse the gospel with German culture. And so what we see there is people like the Israelites back in Amos's time, they say, we think we are better educated than the previous generation. We think we hold the truth better than the people before us. And so they thought that it was quite reasonable and acceptable to go along with what Hitler was saying. We now know that was a terrible decision and it was one that had awful consequences and eventually some portions of the church started to put question marks over it. But for such a long time, they fell for it. Why? They had no theological tools, Gonzalez says. And the reason they had no theological tools was because this book really wasn't taken very seriously. If you just take the vibe or if you just use it as a weapon, you won't see what God is really saying. You won't see who God really is. But it's important to note that not everyone fell for this idea. In 1934, a whole lot of professors of theology, including Karl Barth, who many of you would have heard of, signed a protest against the directions the United Church was taking. A few days after they signed this protest, a whole lot of Christian leaders got together all, from all over Germany, all denominations, and they gathered at Barmen for what they called a witnessing synod, and they issued the Barmen Declaration which became a foundational document in this idea of pulling away from or against what common people, what um, the, the ideology that had started to grow and form in German culture and in the church. They said, it, we see red flags because this is our tool for understanding who God is. And the God we see in here is not matching what you are trying to tell us. And another little quote the raffle put up, the Barman Declaration rejected the false doctrine that the church ought to accept as its basis for its message besides and apart from the one word of God, any other event or powers, figures or truths as if they were God's revelation. In other words, we are not going to follow what Hitler is saying. We are not going to follow the ideologies that are starting to grow out of our culture. Instead, we are only going to look to the word of God. And not only that, they didn't say, we have the monopoly on what the word of God says. They said, they called on all Christians in Germany to test what the Barman Declaration said, test it by the word of God and to accept it only if they found it consistent with the word. They're not using the word of God as a weapon. They are trying their darndest in the midst of all this confusion to say, we humbly approach God's word and say, we think this is what God is saying. We think this is what God's like. And it is not what the Nazi party, it is not what the general church is saying. They paid for that very dearly. There were people executed. There were people taken away into all kinds of um, uh, jails, all kinds of concentration camps. It was a horrific time, but they held 
to what they thought they knew as they looked at and as they delved into and wrestled with the Bible. Verse 17 in Ephesians 5 says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So you can accept what your generation is saying. Amos's time did it. The Israelites did it. We see it in Nazi Germany. We see it today. And I'm not saying we're comparable with Nazi Germany, but each generation seems to think they have a monopoly on the truth. Each generation thinks that they are more enlightened, more educated, more able to talk, speak into politics, sexuality and good works. But are we? I'd like to suggest that we just make different um, mistakes than what those other generations have made. Sure, we're not thinking that the whole world is headed to some amazing perfection, but we make other mistakes. And so we need a plumb line. We absolutely need a plumb line that shows us who God is. We can't assume we can go to the Bible and use it as to, to just back up our own beliefs. Because as Pete Scazzaro says, another slide that Raph's going to put up, he's from Emotional Healthy Discipleship. He said, instead of reading the Bible to assure ourselves that we're right, we are to allow the Bible to read us, that we might discover where we're not listening. Is that our approach to the Bible? Is that our approach to our world? To say, I don't have a monopoly on the truth, I don't think that I'm any more enlightened than any other generation before me. Sure, in some things we are absolutely improving, but in others maybe we're not. I'm going to go to the Bible as my plumb line, as my, um, not my weapon, as my measuring tool to say, God, I want to understand who you are. I want to understand what you want for this world. And I want to do that with humility. And I have to honour Alex in this Alex Zav has um, taken on such a, a, a hot topic in our generation today. He is, for five years or more, he has looked at and studied the issues around sexuality and gender. And as he starts on his PhD, he's, he's nowhere near finished in trying to wrestle with and understand what God thinks about the world and about gender and about sexuality but in a very, very humble way. We are so lucky to have him at Southern and so so blessed to have him doing that hard work for us, not so that we can blindly accept it, so that we, but so that we can join in the conversation with him. And we want to give more opportunities to discuss that, not necessarily from up the front where it's a one-way conversation, but in smaller groups or in conversations that help us to understand a little bit more of what God might be saying with an open heart and an open mind. And Rosalba and I were so, um, so glad to be able to join in his group at Youth Dimension where they talked about, where he talked, took a four week or six week series on sexuality and gender. And Alex's PhD is on, it's on this much of a verse, but he has done so much study in and around all the topics and I'm really grateful for that and we need to be really grateful for that as a church because he's 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 amazing I can't speak highly enough of what he's doing but but doing it with such a sense of humility and such a sense of this is not ever going to be a weapon for Alex 
it's never going to be a soapbox for him. It's going to be a humble um, opportunity for people to be gathering and discussing as they wrestle through what the, the word of God says to us as a group of people. Which brings me to the final little story and the final point, which is this. Ephesians 5, in those first 11 verses, is telling us that we need to be constantly looking to his word for the best way to live. But it is not telling us that we need to read these verses and use them as a weapon against anybody else. It's not telling us that we need to go out and tell everybody about what they should and shouldn't be doing as general people who might be following totally different paths. Not everyone is on the same journey as us. We're called to love, and that's very clear in that first verse in Ephesians 5.1, follow God's example. So we are to be tracking and wrestling through and figuring out as best we can what God is asking us to do and who he's asking us to be. But as we follow God's example, we are, have to remember we're dearly loved children and we need to walk in the way of love. And with that in mind, I want to read this story from Embodied, which is a book that Alex re recommended. And it's a fabulous book um, of, of trying to unpack and understand humbly what the Bible is telling us in this, in this particular case about transgender identities in the church. And I'm going to read uh, part of this story. And the reason I'm not just telling it to you is because it, it uses um, respectful pronouns. And so instead of he and she, it's they. And I really struggle with that. I'm getting better, but I find it hard to get my head around. It's not he, it's not she, it's they. So I want, I want to read it. But just as, a, as a, a bit of a backstory to this, the story is about a person called, called Leslie who grew up in the US, who grew up in a mainstream um, church and who grew up with under, an understanding of faith and a faith in Jesus. But as they were growing up, began to realize that there was a wrestle going on internally about gender and sexuality. And as they, as, as Leslie started to um, go into, her, into their teenage years, the wrestle became bigger and stronger. And so they decided to go to their pastor to get some helpful advice to unpack what was going on in their journey. And unfortunately, in that interaction, that one-off interaction, the pastor of the church marched Leslie out, literally out the back door of the church and said, never come back, which boggles the mind, but it was the response that Leslie got. So then spent the next 18 years outside of the church saying, I don't want to go back there. That's where we pick up this story that I will read as we finish. As you might recall, Leslie was booted out the back door of a pastor's office after going to him for help. But people need love and community, and if they can't find it in the church, they'll search for it elsewhere. And that's what Leslie did. They quickly found love and acceptance among LGBTQ people, many of whom had also experienced ridicule from Christians. Leslie also fell in love with a woman named Sue, and they ended up getting married. Sue had a rare disease that caused her hands to shake. And I'm going to skip a part of the story because we have kids watching, but uh, suffice to say that unfortunately and tragically Sue died one night. The crushing blow of losing a spouse was unbearable. Half dazed, Leslie scrambled to find a church that might be willing to do Sue's funeral. 
After not setting foot in a church for 18 years, Leslie called the only church that they were aware of. It was the church that Sue, um, Leslie's partner, had once volunteered at, and it happened to be one of the most conservative churches in the area. The pastor picked up the phone. Stammering, Leslie said, hi, my name is Leslie and my wife just died, but um, I want to know if you would do my wife's funeral. The pastor didn't say, let me think about that, or maybe, but you first have to know where we stand on the issue of transgenderism and your lifestyle. With compassion and conviction, the pastor said, we would be honoured to. And I think that's where knowing you as Southern, knowing the people who walk through the doors of Southern, that's who we want to be. We want to be people who are looking to God's word to figure out who we need to be, to be honestly delving into what we believe God is saying, but to be embracing and compassionately loving everyone who we bump into in the community, knowing that we are dearly loved children and we walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May we continue to wrestle, but in a way that is honest and transparent and completely loving and embracing. Amen. Have a great week.